Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. So Jenny, how are things going? Things are going great. Valentine's Day is coming up, you know. Best holiday of the year. Everyone says it. Everyone knows nobody, it. Who, nobody says that. Absolutely nobody has ever said that. Nobody has ever said that. It is a made-up holiday to sell <laughs> gift cards, uh, <laughs> as far a, as I'm concerned. Exactly right. Single or coupled, you hate Valentine's Day. Yeah, I never, I've never enjoyed this holiday. Although now with kids, I do enjoy making their little Valentines for their class because they both want Star Wars Valentines, so... Uh, they you always come the with little tattoos. Kids. Yeah. So I get Star Wars tattoos because uh, I get to keep all the extras, of course. So yeah. I'm going to be all tatted out the next uh, couple of weeks. Oh my God. Can I get a Star Wars tattoo? Oh yeah. What do you want? You want a little Han Solo or you're a Boba Fett girl? Uh, Han Solo all the way. Ooh, see, I'm I'm kind of more of a Boba Fett guy, but I'm all on right. the I'm on the side of good always. <laughs> Boba, Boba Fett, Fett, he's in the gray zone. He's in the gray zone. Definitely gray zone. <laughs> all right, so I'm sure that everyone's really interested in who our favorite Star Wars characters are. But <laughs> for those who aren't, we actually do have a topic to cover. So this week, our conference featured a talk from one of our PGY two residents, Darian Sutton Ramsey, on the management of traumatic brain bleeds. That's a pretty big topic, but Darian focused on just a couple of areas. He focused on airway management, prevention of hematoma expansion, and blood pressure and ICP management. So we're going to talk a little bit about each of these and share some of our wisdom and pearls on management. So Darian started off his talk with a case, and I think that's helpful for the podcast as well. You're working an evening shift when EMS calls in and tells you that they're 10 minutes out with a 27-year-old man who was in a high-speed MVC. He was unbelted and his head hit the windshield. His last vitals are BP of 150 over 100, heart rate 126, respiratory rate 16, and he's satting 96%, and he's altered with a GCS of 7. Swami, before we get into the head trauma management, what are you thinking when you get this call, and what are you going to do in the next 10 minutes? Yeah, so 10 minutes is not a lot of time. I'm going to get my team together, the docs, the nurses, the techs, and make sure that everybody knows what their roles are. Who's got the airway? Who's getting access? Who's doing the primary survey? And who's doing the eFast? I'm going to quickly discuss with the resident at the head of the bed what their intubation meds are going to be, how we want to use them, exactly the doses. And even though the patient isn't hypotensive, I'm usually going to be on the phone to the blood bank saying, hey, just so you guys know, we got a trauma coming in. I'm not activating massive transfusion at this point, but we may be calling you back in a couple of minutes to do that. I'm also going to remind my ultrasound person that I want them to do heart, lungs, and then abdomen, and in that specific order. So I, I always notice that you're doing that. Why do you stress that order to them? It's a matter of what's going to either kill the patient now or change my management in the next five minutes. If the patient has a pneumothorax or a hemothorax, they're getting a chest tube. If they've got a pericardial effusion and their vitals tank, they're either going to get a pericardiosynthesis or more likely a thoracotomy. The views of the abdomen, so Morrison's pouch, the splenorenal, the suprapubic, it gives us information that changes management, but not the immediate interventions that are going to happen. So this is really applicable to all trauma patients, but I want to make sure that we're systematic and we apply it to every single one we see so that when the patient comes in with a significant blunt or penetrating trauma, we still follow the same approach. That really makes a lot of sense. And I do often see people do their lungs and their cardiac windows as their last views, which really is, does, it doesn't seem like the right order to do it in. Okay, so our patient rolls in and your team quickly identifies that this is an isolated head and neck trauma without any chest or abdominal issues. 
The vitals are the same, and on exam, the patient doesn't open his eyes, there's no verbal response, and he's only withdrawing to pain. His pupils are equal and sluggish, and your EFAST is negative. What are you thinking now? So clearly this guy's in a bad way. There's likely to be a significant intracranial injury and possibly a C-spine injury based on the mechanism. Clearly we're going to be headed to CT scan, but the priority now is to prevent any secondary injury to the brain. The primary injury here is from the trauma itself. Whatever intracranial injury the patient has is done, and we can't reverse that. So you're going to focus on correcting or maintaining the things that can cause secondary brain injury, mainly hypoxia, hypercarbia, and hypotension. That's exactly right. So with this mental status, the patient needs a definitive airway established to ensure proper oxygenation, ensure ventilation, and to protect the airway from aspiration. I think almost everyone would agree on doing an RSI here, but what meds would you reach for? All right. I want to pick an induction agent that won't drop the PP and will work quickly. Honestly, with that pressure, I'm probably not limited too much. Propofol would probably be fine and is likely going to be part of my post-intubation sedation package. Etominate would also probably be fine too. What about ketamine? We all love ketamine. We do love ketamine. The old teaching, of course, was that ketamine would spike the ICP and harm your patient with head trauma, but more recent literature dispels this dogma. Some research actually shows that ketamine may decrease the ICP. Regardless, it's a fine choice if you want to go with that. But for this patient, since he's hypertensive and tachycardic, I'd probably just go with propofol. I think that's pretty fair. And you're right. This is probably going to be part of your post-sedation package. And I like that you're thinking about that up front, because if we don't, the patient's probably going to be uncovered for a little while while people are scrambling, scrambling around getting the med. So we might as well think about that up front. What about your paralytic? What are you usually going to reach for? So we've only got two choices here, and that's rocuronium and succinylcholine. We typically use succinylcholine in these patients. It's fast on, fast off, which means that we can get the patient awake quickly, and you're able to get a good neuro exam, which the neurosurgeons are going to love. So Jenny, as you know, I prefer rocuronium for just about all of my tubes, whether it's isolated head trauma or anything else. I did a post on this topic back on emdocs.net a while ago, and we talked about this on Podcast 31, and we'll drop links to both of those in the show notes so you can see all of the explanation for why I prefer rock. Overall, I prefer rocuronium because of its longer duration. This means the patient isn't going to wake up midway through my intubation process. Now, it's nice to think that we're going to secure every tube within three or four minutes, but it doesn't always happen. We were actually just recently at a conference and Evie Marcolini, who is an absolutely brilliant emergency physician and critical care doc, was talking about how rocuronium is always her go-to because you don't want that patient waking up midway through. If you don't secure the tube with your first go on your first agent, you don't want to have to redose the succinylcholine. In addition to that, I don't want to sit around and try to figure out what the contraindications are to succinylcholine in that particular patient and whether I can use it. The patient's not going to be telling me what their contraindications are. With rock, I don't really have to think about any of this. Now, finally, it takes some time to get the patient fully assessed and over to the CT scan. By the time that happens, the rock has usually worn off and you can get your neuro exam again. Now, while I'm doing all that moving, it's likely that even if I have a good sedation and analgesia package on board, the patient's going to get a little agitated because we're moving them and they're going to buck the tube. Bucking can increase ICP and that's not going to help the patient. This won't happen if I have rocuronium on board. Now, this isn't to say that you give the rock and you don't give the sedation and analgesia. You got to do both, but it's less likely that you get those spikes in ICP. So I'm going to go ahead and give rocuronium as my agent 
even in the isolated head trauma patient, knowing that I'm going to lose my exam for the next 45 minutes, but that means that your neuro assessment prior to drug administration has got to be good. You've got to be meticulous about getting that exam when you can so that everyone knows what the patient's status was before you paralyze them. All right. So I'm going to maximally pre-oxygenate the patient to avoid any episodes of hypoxia, and I'm going to intubate the patient slightly upright to avoid aspiration and hypoxia. Now, since we're worried about the C-spine injury, I'm just going to reverse Trendelenburg the patient to keep the head up instead of the typical bed up, head elevated position with an angle. Absolutely. And once you've got that tube in, there are a couple things you really need to pay attention to. First of all, get your post-intubation sedation and analgesia package up and going. You should ask for this, again, prior to intubation so it's ready to go. I'm typically going to pick fentanyl and propofol for these patients. The propofol is not only going to keep the patient sedated through their paralysis, but also offers neuroprotection by suppressing seizure activity. Of course, it's also nice that you can turn it off quickly and then get your exam back. Second, maintain normocapnia, somewhere around 36 to 40 millimeters of mercury of CO2. Get an ABG early and see how it correlates to your end tidal CO2. Third, if you can keep the head of the bed up, you want to do that because it's going to keep the alveoli open. It's going to prevent you from having these non-dependent areas so that they don't collapse and it's going to prevent aspiration. And then finally, you want to keep an eye on that blood pressure. You got to avoid hypotension. So you don't see hypotension very often with these patients. If you do see it, what are you thinking? Well, you definitely don't. You see hypertension way more often. Uh, Isolated head trauma, they shouldn't be bleeding out into their brain, although kids can sometimes do that. First, I'd think about whether there's some other kind of hemorrhagic shock that I missed on my primary survey. So we're going to recheck, make sure the belly's okay, the pelvis, the long bones, and just look for any other bleeding. Then I'm going to consider whether I caused the hypotension with my medications, whether that be the propofol, so maybe we have to turn that off and substitute something like ketamine in for sedation, or whether we gave them something like mannitol, which we can talk about a little bit later on. The biggest thing, I think, is to make sure you're not missing bleeding somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Now, more commonly, the patient is going to be hypertensive. This results from the body's attempts to maintain cerebral perfusion in the face of increasing ICP. During injury, the brain isn't able to auto-regulate, and so perfusion to the brain is dependent on MAP. The question is whether elevated pressure is dangerous to the brain or not. This is really hotly debated. The physiologic theory is that if the MAP is sky high, any intracerebral hemorrhage is going to worsen because there's like a pressure head striking those vessels, leading to more bleeding. However, the data from the best studies doesn't really support the pathophysiology that we've come up with. There are a host of studies here, but the most recent are the INTERACT-2 and the ATAC-2 studies. Both of them show no difference in dropping the systolic blood pressure to under 140 millimeters of mercury versus just keeping it under about 180 millimeters of mercury. We'll drop links to our review of the ATAC trial in the show notes, and you can take a look at that. But for now, I would simply aim for keeping the blood pressure under about 180 systolic. I'm typically reaching here either for nicardipine or labetalol. Um, But remember that simply managing your patient's pain and discomfort with your post-sedation analgesia may fix the blood pressure all by itself. What about ICP management? Well, if the ICP is high, we need to get it down so the patient doesn't herniate, and dropping ICP will ensure adequate perfusion to the brain as well. ICP management in the ED, I think, can be pretty tough. We don't usually have an ICP bolt in place to help guide management. So clinically, what I'm going to be looking for are the really gross signs like bradycardia and hypertension, the Cushing response, or physical exam findings of herniation like a new blown pupil. 
So that's a pupil that is large and doesn't react to light. A simple exam finding that can be made difficult by the presence of bright lights in your resuscitation bay. You can use ultrasound to find the optic nerve and measure its diameter, but it may be easier to simply turn the lights down or shield the patient's face to get a better exam. If the ICP is up, you can reach for mannitol or hypertonic saline. The mannitol dose is one gram per kilogram, and because it's a potent diuretic, you have to make sure to replete the fluids that are lost or you risk hypovolemia and hypotension. Hypertonic saline may be a better option for this reason, although the benefit isn't borne out in the literature. The dose of hypertonic saline depends on the concentration you've got at hand. 3% sodium chloride is the most common, and you can give about 150 milliliters for increased ICP. And again, remember that if you've given mannitol and the patient gets hypotensive, it was probably the mannitol that did it. So again, you're going to be thinking about things that you did to the patient. Now, the patient looks like they've got impending herniation. I would hyperventilate them as well, but all this is doing is buying you a little bit of time for you to get your neurosurgeon and get that patient up for some kind of a cranial decompression surgery. Now, finally, Darian touched on reversal of anticoagulation to prevent hematoma expansion. Now, going back to our patient, it turns out they were taking warfarin for a recently diagnosed DVT. The INR was 3.4. So Jenny, knowing that, what other things are you going to give the patient? So warfarin, or Coumadin, is a vitamin K antagonist and basically takes out factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Patient either needs to get FFP or 4-factor prothrombin complex concentrate, or PCC, to drop that INR. And of course, he needs to get IV vitamin K as well. I think most people are going to be reaching for PCC if they have that available in their hospital when they've got ICH and the patients on warfarin, though the evidence doesn't really exist showing superiority over FFP. I think regardless, reversing warfarin is kind of the easy one. We have a couple of approaches. It's the direct oral anticoagulates, the so things like rivaroxaban and apixaban. We've got a lot more trouble. Check out a recent EM cases. It's podcast number 89, where they have an in-depth review on this topic, how to reverse any of these agents. We'll put the link to that in the show notes, of course. Absolutely. Well, Jenny, that's a short review on a really big topic, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's some critical points in here for managing the sick, traumatic ICH patient. And why don't you give us those take-home points that everyone needs to know? Of course. So first, if you get a heads up from EMS on an incoming trauma, take the lead time you get to clearly delineate everyone's roles to help ensure the resuscitation runs smoothly. Second, in the severe TBI patient, the key is to preventing secondary injury to the brain. We do this by guarding against hypoxia, hypercarbia, hypotension, and aspiration. Maximize your pre-oxygenation, get the ET tube in quickly to prevent oxygenation and ventilation issues, and keep the head up if possible. Third, hypotension is rarely seen in isolated head trauma. If the patient is or becomes hypotensive, reassess for any sources of hemorrhagic shock that may have been missed and consider whether the meds you gave may have caused the problem. Fourth, hypertension is a much more common problem, and despite extensive research, we haven't shown that dropping the patient to normal levels is beneficial. Keeping the systolic blood pressure less than 180 seems reasonable, but check your local protocols as well. Fifth, if the patient's ICP spikes or you're concerned about herniation, administer mannitol or hypertonic saline and get your neurosurgeon to the bedside since the patient's going to need some decompression. And finally, make sure to reverse any anticoagulation the patient has on board, as this will hopefully pre prevent a hematoma expansion. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. 
come on over and check out the site at coreym.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.